You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Last week, if you were here with us, Monty started off a new sermon series entitled Holy Spirit. What Nathan said is dead on. I think the Holy Spirit uh, is the probably single most misunderstood aspect of the Trinity, of who God is. Uh, but he's no less, he's not a junior member of the Trinity. This is God in, in all his fullness and glory and, and goodness. So last week, Monty looked at the person of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit has a personality, um, the person of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's not a force. He's a person. He's God. And this week, we're going to talk about the filling of the Spirit. It's not warm and touchy filling. That's not sensory. I'm talking about the filling up of the Spirit, us being filled and indwelled with the Spirit. So if you remember last week, Monty talked about Acts chapter 1. And he talked about this instance where the apostles were told by Jesus to wait for something. Let's look at that in Acts chapter 1. It's Acts 1-4. While staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So today, we're going to take some time to look at what happened when that promise from the Father came about. So if you have your Bibles with you, your smartphones, open up to second, uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verse 1. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. The coming of the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, if you're brand new to church today, this is your first time in a while, or you don't read your Bible a lot, you're actually, uh, feel good, you're in the advantage today. Because for those of us who have heard this before, we've read this before, uh, we kind of miss this. We kind of look right past it. It's familiar, we've read it, we've heard it. But this is weird stuff, right? It's tongues of fire, uh, a virtual tornado going on in the room where they've been praying for eight days. This is pretty weird. And so if you're asking the question like I am, you're saying, what's the deal with the fire? What's the deal with the fire? Well, I'm glad you asked because we're going to spend some time looking at that today. See, uh, fire is a symbol throughout the Bible for the very presence of God. Fire, sometimes smoke as well. But it always symbolizes God's presence. Oftentimes. And we're going to look at this theme of fire throughout the Old Testament, symbolizing his presence. And last week, Monty talked about the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit, this idea that the Holy Spirit, in a sense, is everywhere. But today, we're going to look more about his, his manifest presence, where he brings in and restores this relationship to us. God, in all his fullness, all his power, uh, all his relationship that's available to us. We're going to look at the manifest Spirit coming to be with us. But first, uh, I want you to see that the Bible is one book. We've got a class going on right now on Wednesday nights called Bible 101. And what they're talking about is that there's one scarlet thread that runs through all of Scripture. That though it's 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years on three different continents and three different languages, this is one book authored by the Holy Spirit. And if you were to sum up uh, kind of the four large acts of the Bible— the large uh, meta-narratives, meta the big themes of the Bible. You would have creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. If you look at the first two chapters of your Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, it's all about creation. You see a tree of life, and you see a river of living water, and you see that God is with man, and they're walking together in the garden, and all is right and good. But it only takes three chapters for man to fall. Fall to temptation, fall to sin, and that sin leads to death. And then God puts in to account his rescue plan. Now, he knew it would happen. 
Revelation said the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. But all this middle section of the Bible, this is all about redemption. So the center of your Bible is the Gospels. And the center of the Gospels is the cross. And on that cross is a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came to make a way for his people. And the point is this, to restore what's, what was broken. The last two pages of the Bible, last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, we see again uh, this tree of life. But this time, not just one, but it's on both sides of this river of life. And we see the fullness of the nations have come in. And so not just a, a couple or a family enjoying God's presence, but all the nations, every tongue, tribe, and language is there around the throne worshiping him. So the restoration happens and it's better than it was before. So know that as we look at this picture of fire, that fire is a picture of God's manifest presence. And the first scene I want us to see is the fall. It's in the garden. Man, Adam and Eve sin. You guys are all familiar with that story. But what happens after they sin? They're given these burdens to carry and they're cast out of God's near presence. And there's an angel put there at the gate of Eden to guard their reentry. And what does he have? He's got these, these flaming swords of fire. So we see fire there. There's this separation. See, God's holiness, um, I've heard it likened to the sun, and that the sun is life-giving, the sun is unique, the sun is uh, beautiful and gives life in so many ways. But were we to fly too close to the sun, we would be annihilated. And so God, through fire, must purify the people and the places on earth in which his spirit will dwell for our good, for our safety, because we can't stand in his presence. It says our God is a consuming fire. So the, that's the first scene. Uh, this week I was uh, grilling out, I was cooking some chicken, and I came inside to eat, and I left the grill on while I was outside. And a lot of times uh, I do that by accident. Kelly used to say, uh, every single time I'd cook out, she'd say, hey, did you turn the gas off on the grill? I'd say, yes, why do you always ask me that? I never forget. Well, she got the message and she stopped asking me, and now I seem to be all the time forgetting that. But this time I did it on purpose. And why did I leave the gas on and the grill and the flame on the grill on? To clean the grates, Right. Because fire purifies things. And fire leaves only what's substantive and good and pure and needed behind. Then I can just brush off the char and I'm ready to go the next time. Fire is a powerful thing. Fire purifies. And because of God's holiness, man can't stand in his presence. So part of his plan involves this purification. Purification of the places on earth where his spirit would dwell. And purification of us. The next thing we see is Abram. Uh, later we'd be called Abraham. And Abram is called out of the Ur of the, uh, Ur of the Chaldeans. And God says, I'm going to give you uh, a place. And I'm going to make you a great people. And I'm going to give you my presence among you. And Abraham, like any of us, he was credited as righteousness because of faith, right? That's a picture for us. But he still wanted some assurance. He said, God, how will I know for sure that you'll give me a place? So God calls him, falls into sleep. And he sees this vision. And in the vision, he sees a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And that's the symbol of God. So God showed up again in the fire and God confirmed that I will give you a place and I will make you into a great nation, a great people, and I will give my promised presence to you. The next scene we see where God shows up in the fire, we see Moses in the wilderness. This former prince of Egypt now has been in the wilderness in, in Midian for years and he's pushing 80 years old and he's there and he sees this strange scene in the bush. So if you have your Bibles, look in uh, chapter three of Exodus with me. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 2. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight. Why in the world this bush is burning but not burned? 
when the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, here I am, God. Then he said, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. See, Moses had to hide his face, it says at the end of the passage. Moses couldn't come closer, but the fire was there, the manifest presence and the glory of God in a small way. God always starts small, right? He starts with a seed. He starts with a baby. He starts with one man in Abraham. In Abraham and then he grows it and he multiplies it and he, he, he grows his presence and his glory on the earth that way. And so he started small. But this, this God speaking through the bush, through the fire, would give Moses a message. And he would say, go to Pharaoh, go to Egypt, and set my people free. See, Moses is a picture of a true and better one who would come, who would set his people free. So Moses leads the people out of Egypt. Pharaoh finally says go after the death of all the firstborns. He goes out into the wilderness. But Moses and the Israelites, they don't go alone. They go with the presence of God. God leads them every step of the way, like turn by turn navigation. And he leads them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of what by night? Fire. Right. Again, God's in the fire. God cares about his people. God's bringing his presence to bear. And he doesn't mean to leave us alone. He's restoring this relationship with us. Well, the next place we see, uh, the next scene we see where the fire is manifest presence of God, we see Moses is given instructions in the wilderness. They go to Mount Sinai. Not only does Moses receive uh, the Ten Commandments on these tablets, right? He receives instructions for a tabernacle. This is a tent made of of stretched animal skins. and, And it was to be a movable tent, a movable tabernacle, a place for God's very presence on earth to dwell among his people. And so we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 40, verse 33. This is going to be important. It says, Moses finished the work, the work of building the tabernacle. So Moses finished the work in 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on, and the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. Again, he had to hide his face. For the cloud of the Lord, verse 38 says, was on the tabernacle by day. And fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. A similar picture, right? The smoke, the cloud of smoke by day, the fire by night. God showed up in the fire. And God's presence was coming in greater and greater ways amongst his people. But yet, it said Moses couldn't enter in. So the relationship hadn't been restored yet. Well, the next thing we see uh, is Solomon's temple. The tabernacle is just a mobile version of the temple that would be built. King David wanted to build a temple, but it was a job for his son Solomon to do. And so in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we see this picture of Solomon's temple. And uh, Solomon and all the Israelites had gone into great efforts to build this just glorious temple. And uh, verse 7, chapter, chapter 1, verse 7, we see the beginning of uh, what happens after Solomon dedicates the temple. It says, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped God, giving thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good for his steadfast love endures forever. See, God hadn't given up on them and they knew it and they worshiped him. But although God's manifest presence, his glory had come to dwell amongst his people, still even the priest couldn't enter in. Interesting. 
Leviticus uh, 6. Leviticus 6 shows us that God is really specific and he gives a lot of detail uh, about the temple. Leviticus 6 says, The fire shall be kept burning on the altar continuously, and it shall not go out. It's one of three times we see the same admonition in Scripture. The fire shall not go out. And as people who have this fire inside of us, man, we do well to learn from that. The fire shall not go out. So stoke the fire, fan in the flames the gift God has given you. Well, things are going well. The, the presence of God is growing. His presence on earth is growing. And in greater ways, he's brought himself to bear on earth, his very presence. But then we see this really sad episode in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 10, we see the prophet Ezekiel and he sees this vision and he sees the glory of the Lord exit and rise up out of and leave the temple. Now, that's bad news for people that have been promised a place and they've been promised to be a great people and they've been promised the presence because the presence of God left. And shortly after that, the people left in exile. They were taken out. They would go into Babylonian captivity and then they, their name is in danger. The people, persons of God are in danger of losing their identity from God. But although this is the low point in the history of Israel, although their idolatry and their unfaithfulness has broken the Mosaic covenant that's conditional, See, God's promise to uh, Abraham was still unconditional. And God still was going to make a way to bring his presence to be with his people despite their unfaithfulness. And so what happened is Ezekiel promises in chapter 36, for God, on behalf of God, he prophesies. He says, I will put my spirit within you and I'll cause you to walk my ways and obey my commands. Do you guys realize that we're at the low point in this story and yet a better promise is given? Better than God among us or beside us is God right inside of us. God's spirit in you is better than God's spirit with you. And that brings us all the way back, almost full circle to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we see the picture of the Lamb of God that was coming. And not only the Lamb of God, but he'd be a priest and a king, all these pictures that were given in the Old Testament. But not only that, John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us that Jesus himself is the tabernacle. Jesus himself is the tent of God. Verse 14 says, The word, that's the Logos, Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. His glory now resides in Christ, his Son. And he's in this tent of the body. Paul would later say that, Paul or Peter would say that we, our bodies are like tents. They're temporary, but we house the Spirit. And so the word dwelt among us. That word is uh, this Greek word, skinos. And I don't pretend for a second to be a Greek scholar. I'm not even sure if I'm saying it right. But when I look at Greek words, I'm looking for a homophone, something that sounds familiar to an English word I know. So I think we probably got the English from the Greek. And that word is skinos for dwelt. And so when they would make those tabernacles, those tents in the past, they would use animal skins and they would stretch them. So I can, I can put those pieces together. You know, that's Greek I can pick up on. And so the picture is that Jesus tabernacled with us. Jesus, as the message said, became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The next thing we see in the New Testament is this picture in Matthew chapter 3 of John the Baptist. Now, uh, the Baptist didn't come around until maybe the 1700s, 1800s. Uh, so he's not a Baptist. He's John the Baptizer. And look at what John says here in Matthew chapter 3. John says, yeah, I'm baptized you with water for repentance. But the one who comes after me, the one who's greater than me because he was before me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm not worthy to untie his shoestrings. I can't carry his sandals. There's someone better coming, and he has a better plan, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Are you starting to connect the dots? 
Now let's look back at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Let's look at this Pentecost story and see if it doesn't make a little more sense in light of all that we've seen. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It makes sense now, doesn't it? God's presence comes through the symbol of fire and God's presence has come to rest upon them. And not just his omnipresence, but God's manifest presence. All the goodness of his attributes there for them to enjoy, for them to relate to God in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. You guys see the connection? The connection is that we are now the temple of God. Not the fire in the bush, not the fire and the glory in the tabernacle or the temple or in the God-man, but Christ in us. We're the temple of God. See, we're like hosts. And when I think of hosts, I think of like the movie Aliens from the 70s and 80s. And uh, in Aliens, you know, these parasite aliens come in, they kind of take over your body and it's, it's okay for a while, but then it gets really gruesome and they bust out. This isn't like that. This is not a hostile takeover hosting of the spirit. This is a willful laying down of our lives, a surrender to God. See, when Christ comes in, we're saying to him, um, God, I want to play a supporting role in your great story rather than to continue to star in my own story. And sometimes we see this. We see radical transformation around us. We see people that, that turn from the things of the world and they passionately pursue God. And we think, wow, that's, that guy's out there. That guy's radical. That girl is so passionate. I wish I was like her. But here's the deal. This isn't a, some form of radical, super Christianity. This is the expectation. This is the norm. This is the deal. His life for our life. Our life in exchange for his life. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23 and 24, he said, Hey, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. And he must daily take up his cross. And he's got to follow me, he or she. Because whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. 1 Thessalonians five twenty three gives us this cool picture of how our bodies are composed what we're made up of. And the reality is that we're made up of three distinct parts, body, soul, and spirit. And we've got a graphic here that kind of explains it. See, um, God's always giving us these physical pictures of spiritual realities. So our body, you guys are familiar with that. That's our flesh and bone, our senses, the ways we, we see and talk and interact with and take in the world around us. And then within there, more inward, is the soul. Our soul is our mind, our will, and our emotion. It's our personality. It's who we are. And even more within that is the spirit. And the spirit is where God's spirit comes in and dwells along our spirit in our inner man and is the hot spot of God's presence within us. Uh, we think of this as like asking God into our heart, but uh, in the times of the Hebrews and, and the Greeks, when the Bible was being written, they actually thought that the center of the soul was much deeper, right at the core in the center of a person, in their gut, right in the core of their being. And so this is where God's spirit dwells. But you know what else has three distinct parts? God's temple. Check this out. Physical picture of a spiritual reality. God's temple has an outer court. This is where uh, even the unclean priest could come in and they would wash and they would bring in the sacrifices and they would be made holy and they would be made blameless by the washing of blood and water and they would be able to enter into the holy place then that was more inward and they'd be able to minister. But then only 
the high priest, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, would be able to enter into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And that was the spot in the Old Testament where the glory of God dwelt in all its fullness. So God's given us a picture in the temple. And I think he's saying, hey, I'm not just saying you're the temple of God. It's not just a cute idea or a metaphor. You literally are the spirit, the, uh, the temple of God. And Christ lives in you in all its fullness, in all its glory. So if we see this, this is going to change things. This is going to make a difference. See, what Jesus came to do was not just to open a way to heaven, but to open uh, heaven on earth through us, to bring heaven to earth. He came to restore this broken relationship between God and man. Jesus said in John 16, 17, he said, it's to your advantage that I'm going away. To your advantage. Isn't that crazy? For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Jesus also said to the disciples, he said, hey, you'll do even greater things than me. To which the disciples must have said, and we say, how? How is that possible? How in the world will we do greater things than you, Jesus? Well, he tells us in John fourteen sixteen. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That word another is uh, aeos. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but trust me, it means another of the very same kind. The helper is the Holy Spirit, and he is just like Christ. He said, I'll send another one just like me, of the same quality, of the same power, of the same status. And that's how we can do greater things, because Jesus, the Holy Spirit inside all of us, is more powerful than the Holy Spirit in just one God-man. So here's the question. Why, if we had the very Spirit of God in us, do we sometimes seem to lack His power? Why do we still struggle with sin and temptation? Why do we lack the passion to live a life of faith that honors God? Why does our faith not move mountains? Well, I want to give you two reasons. One, we lack the Spirit's power because we are leaky vessels. In 2 Corinthians 4, we see this picture that Paul gives us. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. He says, We have this treasure in jars of clay. Literally, we're crack pots. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Verse 10, Because we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. You see, we have to crucify the flesh. We have the fullness of a spirit available to us. We don't get some measure of the spirit or greater measure of the spirit. We get God in all his fullness, but we can quench the spirit. And so we have to die to self. The deal about being a living sacrifice is this. You know, most of the time sacrifices are dead, but Paul calls us living sacrifices. And the problem with being a living sacrifice is you can get up and crawl off the altar. So we have to die to ourselves daily. Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't be filled with wine, which leads to debauchery, but what? Be filled with the Spirit, right? And this word filled, it's actually a poor translation. Filled means to be continuously being filled. If it were an old-fashioned water pump, water spigot, you'd have to prime that pump for the rivers of living water to flow up from within you. But we have access to an unlimited reservoir of God's power and His Spirit if we'll prime the pump. See, our souls, our minds, remember minds, will and emotion, our souls are the battlefield for our hearts and lives. That's where we fight the fight, in our minds first. It's kind of like a, a railroad switch. Have you guys seen a railroad switch here? Um, if you imagine, again, the body 
the will, the mind, and the emotions. Our mind is making the decision. Are we going to run on this track or that track? Are we going to be filled with the things of the Spirit or are we going to be filled with the things of the world? Are we going to follow the Word or are we going to go by default with the world? That's why Paul knows this is so important. He says in Romans 12 too, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The battle starts in our minds. We have to choose to follow and believe Him and we have to fill our minds with Christ. It's a binary decision, one or zero, the world or the word. And you can't go in between. You can't ride the fence. If you do that, it's a sure way to derailment. Definitely will be a train wreck like we talked about a couple weeks ago. See, sin quenches the spirit. A man can't serve two masters and light cannot dwell with darkness. It really is the nature of a fire to go out. And so like Paul said to Timothy, we have to fan into flame the gift that God's put in us, the Holy Spirit. Well, the second reason we lack the Spirit's power is because we really don't need His help to do what we're doing. Sometimes we just don't need His help to live the kind of lives we're living, right? I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad, but that's the reality. He's called us to follow Him, to lay down our lives, to continue His mission. Francis Chan writes, Why would we need the Comforter when we're already comfortable? See, we don't need the Spirit to chase the American dream, and we don't need the Spirit to have one foot in the world and just a toe in the waters of the kingdom. We don't need the Spirit to be PC at work and keep our faith to ourselves, and we don't need the Spirit to go to church just a few hours a week and drop some money in the offering plate. God wants all of our lives, and we live lives where all of us is surrendered to Him, and all of us is available to Him. He'll do great things. See, we have all the Spirit, but how much does God have of us? if we're not being stretched, if we're not regularly relying on the Holy Spirit, then we have reason to question ourselves. Paul says, examine yourselves. See if you're in the faith. So run with him. Run with him. There's nothing else worth giving your life for by Jesus Christ. Why do we have the Spirit then? Why do we have the Spirit? What's the purpose? What should restored life filled and fueled by the Spirit look like? Well, I believe the primary reason we've been given the Spirit is to continue Jesus' work and to empower us on that mission. Remember, Jesus said to go. He said to go, but he said to wait and wait for the Spirit. Acts 1.1. You know, Luke wrote both the book of Luke and the gospel of Luke and Acts. And so it's kind of part one and part two, or really one big book. So at the beginning of Acts 1, he says to Theophilus, this guy says, in my former book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. All that he began to do. Who's been at a Christmas pageant or a Christmas play and you've heard the birth story of Jesus from Luke chapter 2? All right, most everybody. And I've read through Luke and I've seen that the death, burial, and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus are covered in Luke as well, right? That's pretty much the whole story of what Jesus did on earth. So why does it say all that he began to do? See, I believe that Jesus is continuing his mission through us. He started it, right, like a small seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that's planted and grows into the largest of all trees. So be that, that birds can perch in its branches. He starts small. And that's why I think Acts would be better entitled the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit in the apostles. He's still at work. In Luke four eighteen and 19, Jesus uh, is in the temple and he stands up. He finds a place in the scroll where Isaiah 61 is. And he says this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because... Because he has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim 
the year of the Lord's favor. And isn't that our job too? He's passed it on to us. He's given us the baton. And he said, run with it, but don't run without my spirit. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then, then you'll be my witnesses into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Don't try and do it without them. But certainly, don't live the Christian life without the power of the Spirit. See, Paul calls us, in 2 Corinthians 5, he calls us ministers of reconciliation. Ministers of reconciliation. Verse 14 of chapter 5 says this. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, or compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died, and for their sake was risen again. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And I appeal to you today, be reconciled to God. Remember, that's his plan, right? That's what all this is about, redemption and the cross at the center. He wants to restore you to that right relationship, God making his dwelling among us. William Carey, uh, the father of modern missions, a missionary to uh, India when missions work wasn't popular at all. There were hardly any missionaries. He had this quote, he said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And I think we got the first part down. But I'm not so sure about the second part. See, I want to be a part of a church. And I want to see this church be a church that in no way can be explained by anything any of us have done. Not by some video I made or some song Todd sang or a great message that Monty or Nathan or somebody else preached. It's not about us, right? But collectively, the synergy of the Holy Spirit at work in us. That's the kind of church we want to be where... The only way to explain what's going on here, the only way to explain the transformation and the multiplication and the reach of this church and the love of this church is that God's spirit must be in us. See, I want to pass on this challenge from you that Steve Idle gave in a message in 2009, almost seven years ago, uh, really to, to this time of year. Fall of 2009, he gave this message. And he said, before every meeting, before every group, before every event, before even a finance meeting, I want you to pray this prayer. Jesus said in Luke 11, 11 through 13, he said, who of you, if your son asked for a fish, instead of a fish would give him a serpent, or if he asked for, a, uh, for an egg, would give him a scorpion. So then if you, though you're evil, and all of us are sinful to the core, right? We all desire what we want. If you, though are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God the Father, or our Heavenly Father, not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So that's the challenge today. If someone were to walk out today and say, hey, what did, what did they talk about this morning? If you can tell them one thing, I want you to be able to say this. That I'm going to ask, my excitement is to ask for the Holy Spirit. To ask for God to fill you up. Less of me and more of Him. I prayed this prayer back then. I've told you this before, and that has been a part of what has changed my life. God's working within me. And so just pray a prayer of surrender every day. Put it on your mirror. Maybe put it on the dashboard of your car. Put it somewhere where you can see it, on your cubicle at work. And just say, God, I'm asking you. You promised I'm only doing what you said you would do by asking you to give me your spirit. And he will, and he'll change your life.
as I was studying this this week, I saw the coolest picture. And, uh, and I think it ties right in, but it's a little bit of a jump. But I just want you to roll with me for a second. Remember when I said in Exodus 40 um, that Moses completed the work in the tabernacle, but he couldn't enter in? And then we looked at 2 Chronicles 7, and we saw that the work on the temple had been completed. But even the priest, they couldn't enter in because the glory of God had filled the temple. So then I was thinking, Moses said it's completed, the work is completed, but Jesus, what did he say in John 19? He was hanging on the cross, and right before he gave up his spirit, he said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit, and in Matthew 27, we see that he entered through the earthly tabernacle, and that the veil was torn that used to divide men from God, keep us from his presence. And he's opening a way forever to the Father to restore that presence. And Hebrews 9 says it so well. Check this out. Hebrews 9 says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that's the temple, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. And verse 23 says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things those physical pictures of spiritual realities to come, to be purified with rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, Christ's own blood, for Christ has entered in, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but in the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And you know what? Because Christ has entered in, you and me can enter in. Our D group was reading in Revelation this week, Revelation 21 says this, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He completed and restored the work from the beginning. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. And come, I'll show you the bride, the church, the wife of the lamb. And, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God and its radiance was like a rare jewel. Verse 22 says, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the glory of the God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb and by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut. See, because Christ entered in, we can enter in. Not in a bush, not in a tabernacle, not in a temple, but into heaven. Moses couldn't do it. The priest couldn't do it. But Jesus did it. And because he did it, we can be in the very near presence of God. See, once what was once broken has been redeemed. And once was lost has been restored. And now the dwelling place of God is with man. Father God, Lord, we thank you for just the awesome picture of your truth in Scripture. Uh, we thank you, God, that you have brought your presence uh, to us in all its fullness, God, all your glory, uh, who you are, God. We thank you that we have access to you through your Son, Jesus. Father God, I pray that every person uh, in this room, Lord, would, uh, would pray that prayer of surrender and asking for your Spirit, God, because when your Spirit fills us up, our lives start to change, and we become empowered to be ministers of reconciliation, God. Because save people, save people. Reconcile people, reconcile others. Father, I pray if anyone does not have your spirit in them, and Romans 8 says that everyone who belongs to God has a spirit in them, God. 
if they don't know what it is to be filled by their spirit, God, if their heart is beating out of their chest as they hear the truth about Christ and then the hope of glory and they want that, they don't have it, God, I pray that they talk to someone today. I pray that they come down front. I pray that they would seek you out, God. And fill them with your spirit, Lord. We thank you for your promise. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we thank you that you win in the end and you restore this relationship with us, uh, with you, Father God. We pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen.